If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite your attention to the book of James, the New Testament book of James, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Today's message is another in our series following the theme of if, I elf. And uh, what we're doing by following this word is to look at various verses of scripture found throughout the Bible that begin with the word if, if. And so today we're looking at verses 26 and 27, where in verse 26 he said, if anyone thinks himself to be religious. So the title of the message is, If You Claim to Be Religious. In order to get the complete thought here, I want to skip back up to verse 21 and uh, read through verse 27. James chapter 1, beginning with verse 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Now, I might stop here and give a word of explanation about the book of James. James is a book of wisdom. It is to the New Testament what the book of Proverbs is to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you have the Psalms and the Proverbs. The Psalms tell us how to get along with the Lord. The Proverbs tell us how to get along with one another. So you have the vertical and the horizontal. So in the book of James, you have the practical side of Christianity. James in his book is not telling us how to be saved. We already, and it is implied in the writing of this book, that we understood that. That we are not saved by what we do. We're not saved by good works. We are saved by grace through faith. That not of ourselves, it is a gift from God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So you'll notice in verse 21 that he doesn't really say that in so many words, but he does imply it by saying, putting aside all filthiness, and all that remains of wickedness in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. So he's talking about the word of the Lord, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And when you hear it, the Holy Spirit puts it into your heart. When you became a Christian, he put the Bible is the written word. Jesus is the living word. And when you became a Christian, when you repented of your sins and invited Jesus in your heart, what happened in essence was the Holy Spirit, who is Jesus in the Spirit, took up residence in your heart. And so he took the written word and the living word and put it in your heart or implanted it in your heart. So he's not talking about in his book how to be saved. He's talking about how saved people ought to behave, how you should conduct your life, how you should live. And it begins by implanting Christ and his word in our hearts. Thy word have I hid in my heart, the psalmist said, that I may not sin against God. So look at verse 22. Having received the word implanted in our hearts, prove yourselves doers of the word. So now he gets into the practical part of what it means to be a Christian. Prove yourselves, demonstrate it, show it, give evidence that you are a follower of the Lord, that you are a doer of the word and not merely, merely hearers 
who delude or deceive themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. And what he's saying in these verses is that uh, oftentimes you look at a mirror, what, a mirror doesn't lie to you. It only reflects what it sees. And so you look in the mirror and you see the real you. And he's using the example of looking in a mirror uh, uh, to illustrate of how one looks in the word. When you look in the word, when you read the word of God, it's like looking into a mirror. Have, hasn't there been times in your life that you would read a verse of scripture and the Holy Spirit would just touch your heart and convict you and you would say to yourself, well, that describes me. That's, that's me right there. This is me. This is the way I am. And, and the word of God reveals the true you. And this is what he's saying here. You, you look into the word of the, God, of the Lord and you don't forget it. You are a doer of the word as well. So look at verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained or unspotted by the world. To a lot of people, the dullest word in the English language is religion. And when they hear the word religion, they immediately think of something that's dull and boring and, and dreary. Uh, they, many times in churches across our land, uh, it has been said that uh, they begin their worship service sharply at 11 and end dully at 12. I can honestly say that's not necessarily true of our church after we've heard such wonderful singing as the choir did this morning and that you did in joining in the singing of the hymns. Our church is truly alive in, in the Lord and I'm not, yeah, I'm bragging on you. I'm bragging on the church. I'm bragging on you. I've heard people who visit our church and they go, we, we've had ministers of music, Andre, who've come to our church and said, what are you doing to get your people to sing. And they said, I've been in other churches. They say, there's nothing like what we have here. And I just praise God for that kind of reputation and spirit that you so demonstrate that when you come to this place, you're not here to experience something that's dull and boring and dry and windy, but, uh, but something that is alive and vibrant and you feel the presence of the Lord and you're touched by it and it's evidenced by your, your attentive uh, paying attention to the service and the message and the singing that we do here today. Someone has said, if your religion has not changed you, then you need to change your religion. A.W. Tozer said, the whole world has been booby-trapped by the devil and the deadliest trap of all is the religious one. Someone else, uh, in fact, Benjamin Franklin said, many have quarreled about religion that never practice it. 
we have all kinds of opinions about religion and church, but nowhere in the Bible are we told to go into all the world and preach religion. We are to go into the world and preach Christ, preach Jesus. Uh, an example of this is Philip. Take your Bibles, uh, keep your place here at James, but turn back to the book of Acts. The eighth chapter of the book of Acts. The Lord has gone back to heaven. Uh, Pentecost has taken place. The Holy Spirit has been sent. And uh, the disciples filled with the Spirit of the Lord are scattered throughout the area and, and they're going with the gospel. And Philip is a primary example of an individual who is fulfilling the responsibilities of sharing the good news of Christ. In the book of Acts chapter 8, look at verse 4. Acts chapter 8 and verse 4. It says, Therefore, those who had been preaching or who, uh, who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. So he didn't go down to Samaria to talk to them about the Baptist church. He didn't say you need to, you need to get baptized and, and join the church or be a Baptist or a Methodist or a Catholic or a Church of Christ or, or whatever. He wasn't preaching denominations. He wasn't preaching religion. He was preaching Christ. You know, there's a difference between Christianity and religion. Christianity is not about um, a, a religion. It's about a relationship, your relationship with Christ. And so Philip goes down to the city of Samaria and he begins preaching Christ to the people. Farther down in the 8th chapter of the book of Acts, we are told that the Holy Spirit, beginning with verse 25, led Philip to go out into the desert. There was a caravan there or on its way, uh, and there was an individual in that caravan that the Holy Spirit wanted Philip to bear witness to. We don't know his name. The Bible just calls him the Ethiopian eunuch unnamed individual. It does say of him that he was the treasurer to the Queen Candace, which means that he was a person of importance. He had been converted to Judaism because he had been to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, and he was on his way back. And uh, passing the time, riding in his chariot, he was reading from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And Philip is led by the Holy Spirit to go over to the chariot and walk along beside him as the chariot is moving along, and he overhears this Ethiopian eunuch reading out of the prophecy of Isaiah. And uh, so Philip speaks up and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And he responds by saying, I, I don't have anyone to explain these scriptures to me. So at the eunuch's invitation, Philip gets up into the chariot and it says that he begins in the same place that the eunuch was reading from and preached unto him Jesus. Look at it in Acts chapter 8, beginning with verse 34. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? In other words, is Isaiah reading about himself or is he reading about somebody else? And so in verse 35 it says, Philip opened his mouth and beginning from the scriptures he preached Jesus. To him. 
So he didn't preach religion to him. He preached Jesus to him. He talked to him about Jesus. And there is a difference then between Christianity and religions. Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship to the living Christ. With this then as kind of a foundation for us, let's briefly look at two major things that are outlined for you on your, on your bulletin. I want us to look briefly at the marks of a false religion and the marks of a true religion or a pure and unspotted and undefiled religion as James refers to it. So there are three marks of a false religion that James refers to in these verses of scripture in, in James chapter one. The first mark of a false religion is that it is hypocritical. It is hypocritical. Look at verse 26, James chapter one and verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, doesn't say that he thinks about religion, but it, that he thinks that he is religious, uh, thinks himself to be religious. The King James says he seems to be religious, to think about it and to have a, a, a seeming attitude and, and testimony that you are a religious person doesn't necessarily mean that you are. Uh, other translations render this, he claims to be religious or he considers himself to be religious. James does not say if any man is religious. He does say if any man thinks that he is religious. So they're thinking about this. And he says, well, I think I am. Uh, and, he, and he lives supposedly in such a manner that people say, well, it seems that he is, but we don't know for sure. And so it is hypocritical. In the book of 2 Timothy, again, keeping your place there at James, but in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul had a lot to say about false religions and hypocritical religion. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. But realize this, Paul wrote, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Terrible times will come. Difficult times will come, and he describes them. Verse two, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious, gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of, self, of God, holding to what? Now notice verse five holding to a form of godliness. Now, isn't that amazing? After all that he is, the words that he's used to describe the kind of people that are going to be in existence at the end time before Christ returns, all of those words indicate anything but a child of God, but a believer in Christ. And yet he says in verse five that they hold a form of godliness they pretend to be godless, they, godly. They have a form of godliness. They, they think they're godly, and yet their lives are that of an atheist. And, and a lot of people professing to, to know Christ, and yet their lives don't back it up. And practically, they are atheists. They are living as though God did not exist. They are living as though it doesn't matter whether I'm a follower of him or not, I've got religion attached to my name and it is hypocritical. In the book of Revelation, chapter three and verse one, there's a church by the name of Sardis. 
the Holy Spirit led John to write the words of Jesus and said of the church at Sardis, you have a reputation to be alive, but you are dead. So although they had that reputation in the community by their lifestyle, they were anything but alive in Christ. And so their religion was hypocritical. Jesus talked about hypocrites over in the Sermon on the Mount when he talked about people who stand on the corner and, and, and pray out loud and do all their gestures so that people can see them and, and, and say, well, but look at that person, how religious they are. Look, he's praying, he's moving his beads, he's doing all of these things, twirling his little, uh, little circle there and, and, and chanting to the Lord. Uh, Jesus said, they have their reward. And that's all they'll ever get is the praise and recognition of men. But you, when you pray, don't you be hypocritical like that. Don't you do a show so people can see what you're doing. You go to your closet. You go to somewhere private and personal, just between you and the Lord. And there in secrecy, you pour your heart out to God. And he who sees you in secrecy will reward you openly. Don't be hypocritical. Now, of, of all the things that Jesus condemned, the most severe uh, criticism and condemnation that people received for the sins that they were committed was hypocrisy, hypocrisy. And if you would take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 23, Matthew chapter 23. I hope you brought your Bibles with you. Anytime you come to the Lord's house, you bring God's word with you, okay? Bring the whole Bible. Don't just bring the New Testament. You wouldn't go anywhere half-dressed, would you? You come fully clothed, the entire word from Genesis to Revelation. But in Matthew 23, eight different times, Jesus pronounced it a woe upon those hypocrites. And he called them hypocrites. A hypocrite is a two-faced individual, one who gives the appearance to others that he is something when in reality he's not. The word hypocrite, as you know, came from the practice in those days when one person on a stage would play the role of different characters. And the way that you knew that he was changing characters was by placing a, 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 some kind of a mask in front of his face. And if he was one person, he would hold that mask up in front of his face and, and, and he would talk as that person. When he changed characters, he would put that one down, pick up another one, hold it up. So he was a two-faced individual as a character on stage. And so a hypocrite is a two-faced individual, one who gives the impression to others that he's one thing when in reality he's totally different. And Jesus is condemning the hypocrisy of these Jews. Notice in verse 13, but woe, when he says woe, man, that's a terrible, terrible pronouncement. Uh, he's, he's going to pronounce terrible judgment. Uh, this is not something to delight in or to brag about. And so he says in verse 13, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. You're keeping them from becoming a part of the kingdom, he says. Look at verse 14. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You devour widows' houses, and for a pretense, you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You've traveled around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. And he goes on and on through verse 29 through, through verse 33. 
He ends up in verse 33, he says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? And so some of those most severe words of condemnation ever spoken by our Lord are recorded there in the 23rd chapter of Matthew as he condemned the hypocrisy of those individuals who were religious on the outside, but on the inside, they were very, very corrupt. The word is just in their mouths. They talk about it. It reminds me of the character in John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress by the name of Talkative. And it says of Talkative that that was all there was about his religion. It was all words in his mouth, but there was nothing else about his lifestyle that would indicate that he was a follower of the Lord. Christianity then is not a religion, it is a relationship, a relationship. Notice not only false religion is hypocritical, but false religion is self-deceiving. Now, there are three times in this first chapter that, that James uses the word deceive or deception. Uh, look at chapter 1 and verse 16. Verse 16 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Now, that, that comes on the heels of, of Jesus or of James talking about temptation. And he says, don't, uh, don't be deceived about this. Don't be misled about this. That when you're tempted, it's not God to do, to do evil. Now, God will tempt you, but the word tempt there means to, to put you to the test. But the devil will tempt you to do evil. He will tempt you to do wrong. And that's what he's talking about here in, in, in James chapter 1. He says, when you're tempted to do evil, don't you say God tempted you. God made me this way. God caused me to do this. No, he says, it's the devil that's doing that. And so he says in verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, about temptation. God didn't tempt you to do evil. The devil did. You know, the, God gets a lot of credit for things he had nothing to do with. God's so good, why did my so-and-so die? Or why did, this so -and -so, why did this happen or that happen? And all those kinds of things. And God gets blamed for a lot of things he had nothing to do with. The devil's the one that causes us to do evil. The devil came to kill, steal, and destroy. God came in the person of Christ to give us life and to give us the abundant life. So don't ever say, well, God tempted me and I, I did evil. No, the devil did that. Notice in verse 17, every good thing that comes from above, of course, is perfect and so forth. Look down at verse 22. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude or deceive themselves. So you deceive yourself. And then look down at verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but what? Deceives his own heart. You know, some of the biggest, the, the loudest lies that have ever been said are the lies that we tell ourselves, that we tell ourselves, we lie to ourselves. I'm okay, you know, I'm as good as anybody else. I'm a whole lot better than those hypocrites down there at First Baptist Church and on and on it goes. So we lie the loudest when we lie about ourselves. John tells us over in his first epistle, if we say that we have no sin, we lie. We lie to ourselves. We, we call God a liar because God said you're a sinner. And so we lie. We lie. And uh, self-deceivers will prove in the end self-destroyers. And so we deceive ourselves. False religion in the third place is worthless. Worthless. Look at verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious 
and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Some translations, the King James, for example, uses the word vain. Other translation uses it useless or empty, empty. To just have a religion that's empty. There's no value to it whatsoever. And, and it's, it's worthless to us. It's worthless to other people. And more importantly, it's worthless to God. We're wasting our time by giving vain, repetitious forms outwardly of our worship of the Lord that mean nothing and we leave it behind and forget all about it when we walk out the doors to spend the rest of the day and the rest of the week without God. And God just says it's worthless, it doesn't mean a thing to me. Let me give you another passage of scripture over in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. The first chapter of Isaiah And I suppose that if there was any group of people who were as devoutly religious as anyone could be, it would be the Jewish people and all the ceremonial things that they went through. And yet it got to the point that it was meaningless, worthless, and useless to them as well as to the Lord. And finally, God has enough of it and he says to them, it just means nothing to me, nothing. Look at it, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. Isaiah 1, chapter 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? In other words, you offer all of these sacrifices. You go through all of these rituals. And what is it worth to me? Verse 11, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of red fed fed cattle and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs of goats when you come to appear before me who inquires of you this trampling of my courts. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon's festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I weary, I weary of them all, he says. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I'll hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves, make yourself clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, and plead for the widow. That's the exact quotation that James uses that we're going to see about in the moment. So he says, just just cease being religious. If you're not going to take what I've said and require of you and put it into practical application. And so it's vain, it's It means nothing. We're just like mannequins in a show window. We're just fake, not real. Now, notice those three three marks of a true religion. We've been hammered on the head enough about false religion. If, If that's true of false religion, what are the marks of a true religion? Well, there are three. And the first one, of course, is that a mark of true religion is a controlled tongue. Go back to James chapter 1. And verse 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless, worthless. Now, in this passage of scripture, James gives some examples and they're not 
inclusive. That he just says here, here for example, are some some samples that you can look at. And one is, how can you test that your religion is true and genuine? You learn to control your tongue. Control your tongue. Uh, mistakenly, one little kid oh, misunderstood the words about spreading the gospel, and he says, go ye therefore and spread the gossip. No, we don't spread gossip. We spread the good news. We spread the gospel. And so you do this by a, a, a controlled tongue. A controlled tongue is the barometer of your maturity. Can you control your tongue? It's impossible yourself. James talks about this. Uh, James, in the third chapter of, of his epistle, if you were to go on and read chapter three, not now, but later, he talks about how it's impossible for you to control your tongue by your own initiative. Uh, he says it, it's just you need a, a horse, for example, uh, strong, um, and yet it's controlled how? By putting a bit in its mouth and, and controlled by the bit and the reins that the rider holds, sits in the saddle. And, and you can control a, a horse with a, a little bit in the mouth. A ship sailing through the ocean, as huge as it is, is controlled and driven and directed by a little device underneath there. And, and it takes you to the right or to the left or up or forward, whatever. A huge ship by a little rudder. That's all it takes to control it. He says a, a, an uncontrolled tongue is like a wildfire. How does a wildfire begin? By just a little match, by a little spark. It doesn't take a huge flame to get a wildfire started. Just a little spark and it'll do it. And he says your tongue is that way. And once it sets on fire, it just consumes the whole person. And so it's something that you cannot control, so you have to turn it over to someone who can, and that someone is the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't be like the lady who came forward during the invitation and said, Pastor, I need to place my tongue on the altar. He said, you can't do that. She said, why? Because the altar's not long enough. How long is your tongue? You wag your tongue, and you tell tales, and you spread gossip, and things that are not true, and you're malicious with your tongue, and you can be hateful and hurtful to the people the way you use your tongue and the speech that comes out of your mouth. And James says, here's an example of real religion, that you turn your tongue over to the Lord and you let him control it. It's a mark of maturity in your faith. That's how you know. Not only a controlled tongue, but he also says a compassionate heart. A compassionate heart. Look at verse 27. Pure, undefiled religion in the sight of our God. Now notice, oftentimes I have overlooked those words. But they are just as important, if not more so, than the others. But notice he says, in the sight of our God and Father. So you're not living your life to please other people. You're living your life to please the Lord. And that whether your life is pleasing or displeasing to him, it doesn't matter. He sees you. He knows what's going on in your life. He sees what you do. He hears what you say. He sees where you go. In the sight of God and the Father. And he says, if you want to know what pleases the Father, here's an example of it. Visit the orphan and the widow. Now, he's not limiting it to those two things. The J.B. Phillips paraphrase of the New Testament says, here are some examples that you should follow. And so it's not an, exhaust, an exhaustive list. But he just names two. Visit the orphan and visit the widow. Now, a visit is not just a, 
uh, a, a knock on the door and going and say, how you doing? Good to see you. Goodbye. It's, it's not just a friendly visit. The word visit here means that you go to this individual. The word actually can be translated to inspect. And you're not there to spy on them, but you're there to, to, to see what the needs are. Uh, what, what is the now? Of course, these in these days when James wrote this, there weren't orphanages like like we have today. But that still doesn't exempt us from taking care of the orphans, and it certainly does not exempt us from taking care of the widows. Uh, there's a lot in the scriptures that says what a church ought to do in the way of ministering to the widow, and uh, and God becomes their husband in spiritual sense. But we have a responsibility to take care of those in our church who are widows. We have a responsibility to take care of those in our church who are less fortunate than ourselves. And it doesn't mean that we just go pat them on the back and say, I hope you do okay. You look at their lives and you see, is there anything there that they have a need that needs to be met that I can meet? James talks about this in his epistle as he practically talks about what good is your religion if you say that you have religion and you meet somebody who's poor and destitute and, and it's wintertime and it's cold and they're shivering because they don't have proper clothing and, and you just kind of pat them on the back and say, I hope you find help somewhere. God bless you and away you go and you have the means to help them and you don't ever do it. What useless, how useless is your religion? It's worth nothing. For you to know of somebody who has a need and you have the ability to meet that need and you don't and God moves you to do it and you still don't do it. James says, what good is that kind of faith? For you to say that you have faith and you see your brother in need and you don't lift a hand to help him. Oh, you've got some benevolent organization in the community that takes care of it. Relieves me of all my responsibility. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And so pure religion and undefiled, he says, a compassionate heart of just, just taking care of people. A parable that Jesus told in the 25th chapter of Matthew, talking about the judgment day. And he said, judgment day will be like a shepherd gathering his flock. And he separates the sheep from the goats. And he will say to the sheep, come, you blessed of the father. Inherit the kingdom that's been prepared for you. Enter into the joy of the Father. Why? Because I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was in prison and you came to me. I was sick and you ministered to me. And they would scratch their heads and say, when in the world did we ever see you in that kind of a condition? And Jesus said, inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. I wonder how many times I have met somebody who had a need and I didn't meet that need when in reality I was looking at Jesus and I'm going to be held accountable for what I did not do as well as what I did do and so in as much as you've done it unto the least of these you've done it to me Jesus said offer a cup of cold water to those who are thirsty so you, so you have a, a compassionate heart here. And he says that proves in a, in a real way that indeed you are a child of the Lord and your religion is genuine. The third thing is, of course, to have a committed life. A committed life. Look at verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Some translation renders it unspotted 
or corrupt. Often wonder why the Lord doesn't just take us on out when we get saved. Why doesn't God just zap us out of here right now? Because we're left in this world to be a witness for the Lord and to be a minister to those who are in need. Sometimes we're the only witness that other people will have. But while we are in this world, we're in the world, we are not of the world. Someone compared that to a, a deep sea diver in those days when there was, you know, had the suits on and they had an air hose connected to it. And the people who stayed up on board and they would pump their air pump back and forth. And this guy would get in his suit and he'd go down under the water. He was in the water, but in reality was out of it. He was protected by it. We're left in this world. We are in a dirty, filthy, immoral society. And yet as Christians, we are set apart from them. Set apart from them. Go back. We're still in James chapter 1. Look at verse 21. Therefore, verse 21, therefore putting aside all filthiness, all filthiness. I discovered a unique meaning about this word filthiness. Um, William Barclay, in his commentary on this passage of scripture, says that this word filthiness comes from a Greek word that means wax in the ear. Dr. Jack <laughs> knows about <laughs> wax in your ears. You get wax in your ears, it'll make you deaf. Where you can't hear, and people say, what'd you say? Because you got wax in your ears and, and to use it spiritually, it means that it stops your ears, the ears of your soul to the voice of God. That God's talking to you, but you can't hear him. Why? Because you got filth in your life. You've got sin in your life. You've got immorality in your life. And it makes you a deaf person when it comes to hearing the voice of God. Well, how do you get your ears clean? Well, same way, wash it out. Wash it out with the word of the Lord so that you can hear God's voice. And so he is saying in verse 21, put aside all filthiness, get rid of those things that make you deaf to the voice of God. And then furthermore, he says, and all that remains of wickedness, the word wickedness there refers to hidden sin. You know, we, we confess the big ones, but it's the little foxes that spoil the vine. And James is saying, yeah, you need to get the wax out of your ears, the soul, so that you can hear the voice of God. And you've got to confess and get rid of all the little bitty sins that are standing in the way of God speaking to you and, and, and telling you what he wants out of you. So in other words, clean up your life. Repent of the sins. Ask the the, the Lord Jesus to wash away your sins uh, and, and make you clean and decent and pure before the Lord. And this then are the three marks of a real genuine, genuine religion. So we need to examine ourselves. We need to know, we need to make sure that we are children of God. Do you have the evidence in your life to prove that you are a child of God? Is there anything other than the words that come out of your mouth that back up your confession of faith that you are a child of God and you can look at the way I live? And, and again, we're not, we're not conducting ourselves in a way that we want people to brag on us. You remember what Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your what good works and do what brag on you? No, that they may see your good works and what glorify your father who is in heaven. 
That's what being a Christian is all about. It's not just being saved from the flames of hell. That's a byproduct. God saves you so that you can bring glory to him, to him. Is your life doing that? The way you speak, the things that you say, what you listen to, how you behave? Are you living a separated life? What kind of religion do you have? Is it a true or a false one? Is it gold or is it brass? And what does God think about it? Because he says here that in the sight of God in our Father, when God looks at you, what does he see? Is he pleased with your life? Is it the final, final test of being committed to the Father, loving him and serving him every day? Let's bow together. <clears throat> Father, we, we ask that you shine your revealing light upon our lives to see whether or not we have a true, real, genuine, pure religion. To say that we are religious and yet not give the right evidence of what true religion is all about would be to be hypocritical. Spirit of God, speak to our hearts, remove the wax from the ears of our souls that we might hear your voice and hear it clearly and loudly. Whatever your will is for us to do this hour, that we'd be willing to act upon it, not just talk about it, but to prove it by our actions, by our character and the way we live. So bless the time of invitation to your honor and to your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you stand with me, please? And if God is speaking to your heart today to make a decision public, you please come forward.